Hi there, local citizens. It's your host, Florence Adu, for the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. This week, we're kind of local in Ghana when it comes to what we're talking about and what the organization is that we're talking with. I'm with a gentleman by the name of Cliff Schmidt. He is the executive director of Amplio, which was formerly known as Literacy Bridge, which is a not-for-profit that empowers children and adults with affordable tools for knowledge sharing and literacy learning towards the advancement of education, health, economic development, democracy, and human rights throughout the world, which is, I think, an all-encompassing way of saying we're really doing something in the world. So before I move on too much and tell Cliff's story, I'll let him tell his story. Cliff, welcome to the podcast. Tell us more about what you do and who you are. Okay, thank you so much, Florence, for um, for inviting me here today. So yes, I run this organization, Amplio. We have staff in Seattle and in Ghana. We're a relatively small organization. And as you said, our main focus is around people being able to be empowered by getting access to knowledge. In the beginning years, we had more of a focus specifically on literacy, but then what we, um, where we kind of evolved was more just about sharing knowledge in many different areas around health or agriculture, as well as education. So how did you come to Ghana? Like, where did you just like look at a map and point your finger and at there? I mean, yeah. you... You mentioned that you're partially based in Seattle. So how did you come to Ghana? Yeah, that's interesting story. I was taking a class at University of Washington. I had already done a bachelor's and a master's degree, and but in, in other subjects, in brain and cognitive science and, and computer science and engineering. So nothing at all related to the kind of things I would need to know about uh, to be working in sort of the global development sector, which I guess is what would be considered where Amplio's work is now. And so I was taking some classes on the side and I saw that there was a study abroad trip over a summer. This was back in 2007 and it was to Ghana. But what really attracted me to it was it was to the upper west region of Ghana working with a local NGO. And so I thought, as you know, but for for your listeners, the upper west region is about as far as you can get from where you would land in the airport in Accra. And so I thought that seemed like a great opportunity for someone like me who knew nothing in terms of, you know, practical real life experience in any of these countries that I would end up working in. So I joined that. I was, I think I was 35, 36 years old at the time. And I was the oldest one. Everybody else were undergraduates, you know, 20, 21. I think there was a 24-year-old. But I went there to join this trip so that I could learn something and and work over the course of about six weeks uh, with local organizations. And then when I started Literacy Bridge, which later became Amplio, I decided to focus the work there in Ghana for a few reasons. One is, well, now I had six weeks of experience (laughs) with something. Um, I had met a lot of people, a lot of Ghanaians, so I had what would end up being a a team to work with. But also I looked at where Ghana was in 2007, and I felt like there were a lot of parts of the country uh, where the problem that we wanted to solve was plentiful, unfortunately. So there's a lot of extreme poverty, low literacy, a lot of inequity in many ways. But on the other hand, there are a lot of positive things that would make 
the work easier to get off the ground. Very stable government, great democracy, especially in terms of like the media. And you could get a bus at the time, maybe only a couple, a few times a week, there would be a bus going up to the Upper West. But that was better than, let's say, if I was to want to focus in um, in uh, the Congo or um, or some other countries or Afghanistan, for that matter. You know, you might see the same problems there we were trying to solve, but there would be a lot of other problems that we weren't trying to solve. And that would make the work harder. So Ghana seemed like a, a really great country from that perspective. So you came in 2007 and you started this organization. You basically bootstrapped it, I'm imagining. how. So how did you go about you coming for a study abroad and then coming to the idea of actually creating, molding, organizing, mm -hmm. motivating the people that ultimately became the staff of Literacy Bridge? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I guess this gets a little bit to part of how we do our work. You know, I came with a background of technology. I worked at Microsoft and some other software companies long ago. And uh, before that, I was in the U.S. Navy submarine force, but as an engineer, you know, working in the nuclear power plant and that kind of thing. So I really came with a technology background and I was interested in how technology could be useful to solve some problems around poverty and disease. And so at the time, back in 2006 and seven, there was a lot of, I'll call it hype around one laptop per child, what's called uh, the $100 laptop at the time. It was actually about $200, I think. Um, it was fairly new in terms of a low cost laptop, but it had problems in how they were approaching it, where I felt like they were just, they weren't really thinking about the local side of how these things would actually be used and adapted and built on. And they were loading it up with Wikipedia articles and not in local languages. And so I was trying to be helpful with that program, volunteering for them. They asked me, I actually did bring some of their laptops to Ghana in that first trip. But before I did that, I researched and saw how much money the education ministry had to spend on each student. And it was averaged about $60 per student per year. And so a $200 laptop just did not really make sense to me. So I started looking for a very low cost device. I started thinking about what could be useful in schools and other places if you had something that was very low cost, that was built around locally created content. So more people could get access to, to local knowledge. And so that was the idea. So I went to Ghana, both with this laptop from One Laptop Per Child, and then also with some other small devices, children's toys and other things to get feedback on and basically learn from. But my thought about it was, is could you have an audio device that would be very affordable and built very durably and allow people to record content and listen to content? And, you know, how would that work? So that idea is, uh, is what I tested out during those weeks I was in the Upper West. And it, it had a lot of people very interested in it. So it led me to say, well, maybe I guess I need to start an organization now and and start taking the next step. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you bring a very interesting point that hasn't changed very much mm -hmm. since 2007. Mm -hmm. There is still not a lot of local content. There's mm -hmm. still not a lot of local language content. So that's where I moved here in 2013 to do just that. Mm -hmm. And I still have challenges. When we first started, we had challenges and pushback from even the ministry mm -hmm. and teachers at schools. And they would say, well, why are we teaching the local language? They need English. Why, mm -hmm. why, 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 why? And 
when I first moved here, I was telling people what I was doing. And, and a lot of people ask, well, why are you teaching other local languages? Why not just English? We need to get ahead with English. And I said to someone, I said, well, if you learn, you're at home speaking your own language, and then you you go out and you're in a classroom for however however long, and then you go back home and you don't have that same language that you're learning in, it just becomes this education thing is something totally foreign. So you're comfortable at home and they, the knowledge becomes foreign. So it just becomes this whole thing that is not native to yourself if you're learning how to learn in a language that is not your native, your native tongue. And so I was like, this is just brain surgery. And I think the Ministry of Education, I think they started this in 2010. They actually started teaching from P1, mm. P2 in the local language. Unfortunately, they didn't have enough teachers and still don't have enough teachers that can actually teach in a local language. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a point of, you know, migration and which district are you learning Ga versus Tree versus Ewe versus Hausa and all these things. So it's very complicated and I think it is up to the private and public-private partnerships and the, the not-profit sector to dig in and really address it. The unfortunate thing is that there just isn't a lot of funding that is available because like most people are saying, why teach not anything but English that's out there? So, so I wanna pivot a little bit and ask you, how did you then go about resourcing your organization to be able to be effective? Oh yeah, it was very much a, a shoestring kind of thing. Very small budgets. Now, I mean, it was small compared to you know any of the organizations anyone would know of. But also, I have to say, I certainly was privileged to come from just from working in the software industry. The friends and colleagues I had had more ability to donate than you know if I had come from well, let's say I was working in social work and then decided to start this organization, the people I would know would probably not be able to write a thousand dollar check. And I was able to get a, a good number of thousand dollar checks and plenty of hundreds of dollars of checks. And, um, and then, you know, every once in a while, a $5,000 check or something like that. So it was, it was small in that the first, our first year, I think our budget was $80,000 and, and it probably didn't get over $150,000 for three or four or five years. So it was, better than other people would have been able to do because of the people I knew, but still it, we didn't have us any paid staff, including myself for the first three years in the US. In Ghana, I think we were able to pay someone after a year or so. And it was probably just one person for that first year and then maybe another few people. So it really was, I think, making things work with a bunch of really dedicated volunteers in the US and Ghana to, to get started. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to take a, a little bit of a turn and ask you where I have this section where I ask all of my guests how you came to be living, working and playing. So you kind of suggested that about Ghana. Beyond that, why the where for where you are now? Okay. Yeah, it was, it was actually the Navy submarine force that took me to the general Seattle area where there's a submarine base. And then because you know, back in high school, I was a, a computer nerd. And so, um, so finding myself here with, you know, Microsoft and Amazon, I guess, had started soon after I got here. And so there was a lot of, you know, software opportunities. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll go into software. So that's what kept me in Seattle. And then when I made this, you know, this next career shift into what I do now, back in 2007, 
it made sense in terms of funders as well, you know, the Gates Foundation and and a lot of organizations related to the Gates Foundation or that are funded by the Gates Foundation, like PATH and others mm-hmm. are here in Seattle. So it, it didn't seem like the wrong place to be. It wasn't New York and it wasn't, you know, Accra or Nairobi or Geneva. Um, some of the places you might think wouldn't be bad places for a development organization, but Seattle's not not too bad for that. Sure. So that was mainly why. Okay. I'm curious about your naval experience. Uh-huh. So I always think Navy SEALs when I hear the Navy. <laughs> so it's a Marines. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about what that was like in just being in, you said you were, you came because of submarines. Yes. Yeah. So uh, the Navy, I applied and received a, a scholarship to college paid for by the Navy. My father oh. was a naval officer. He was a, an aviator, so he flew helicopters. And so when I was looking for ways to pay for college, you know, he had this idea that, well, here's a good way to pay for college. <laughs> and I was never particularly interested in the military at all. It's not, just wasn't really my personality. But then okay. when I, when you finish your college, then you have to choose what are you going to do or you get stuck somewhere. And I volunteered to be part of the submarine force. And I, the reason was because it was sort of the most, you know, geeky engineering type thing to do. So I was an officer in the submarine force, but all officers are required to understand engineering very well because they're run on nuclear power and, yeah. uh, and, and you know, all the systems, they're all engineering systems. So, um, so yeah, I did it and I, I didn't mind it. I knew it would never be a career, but it was kind of a unique, fun, sort of different thing to do for a few years. I did it for about seven years. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, it is unique. Mm-hmm. And did you travel with the submarines? Did you, did that, did you go yeah. anywhere like exotic? No, no, it did not help with that because there are two types of submarines uh, that the U.S. Navy has and um, they call them fast attacks. And those are the ones where you might travel, where you could pull into different ports. And when you're not pulling into ports, you're probably spying on, you know, some country somewhere right off their, you know, their shores and so it's very exciting in that way. The type of submarine I was on was the, the ballistic missile submarine. So these are the ones that are there for nuclear deterrence. So nuclear-capable missiles are in these submarines. Uh, the, the Tridents have up to 24 missiles um, with multiple warheads on each. So it's a very kind of scary, heavy sort of thing to be doing. But when I would go out to sea, my thought would be, that when I went out, it allowed someone else to come back and, you know, that that crew to be with their families. And so we'd actually call them patrols. You go out into the middle of the ocean and you were there to hide in the middle of the ocean where no one could find you, where, you know, the other nuclear powers uh, couldn't know where you were. And then the whole point of that would be you could never win a nuclear war because, once you fired your missiles, others would come at you and you couldn't take out the other missiles first because you don't know where they are. They're hidden in the middle of the ocean. And so that was the job. So it was a very strange kind of job to have, especially then to work in um, things that have to do with uh, service to humanity and <laughs> all of that. But, yeah. Right, 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 right. That's so interesting. Okay. All right. So now I ask my global speak question. So what I like to ask is, I want to know what you hear. So I ask to sh- you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Yeah, I think, well, as far as like one word or phrase that pops into my head, I would say sustainability is used in many different contexts, locally and globally. 
And I think the thing about the word sustainability is most people would say, well, that's a, that's a good thing. You want that. But I think it's very important when you hear someone talk about something being sustainable that you consider it the starting point for a conversation and rather than an assumed, a word with an assumed universal definition. Because in my work, for instance, when we talk about sustainability or when a donor might ask us about sustainability, again, it's one of those things everybody wants to have and everybody wants to say yes to. But I think the details are important. And so what do you mean by sustainability? Do you mean that what you've built up over some period of time won't fail on you? Or do you mean won't stop being nurtured or continued? Or do you mean that what you've built up will grow further with no resources or limited resources? And so so anyway, just uh, there's a lot more I could talk about there, but I think that it's a word that, that has different definitions and is used in so many different contexts uh, globally and locally. Mm, so you hear it quite a bit. Yes, we do hear it quite a bit in the development space. Mm-hmm. Everything needs to be somehow, quote unquote, sustainable. So what does sustainability mean for you at Amplio? It means that the knowledge that people gain won't be lost. It won't be forgotten somehow because it will have been available and received in a way and a you know sort of number of times over a period of time and through a number of different sort of formats that the people who are exposed to it have internalized it, incorporated it, acted on it. And now if you remove a program, in our case, for instance, people won't forget how to wash their hands or when it is important to wash your hands or after growing their best harvest yet of some particular crop, they won't forget you know, what they did before. And so if that's what you've invested in, that those things will continue. What I think is a some people might mean when they talk about sustainability, which is another important topic, but I think is, is a little different, would be in our case, we have these little devices called talking books that are filled with all this locally recorded audio content for people to learn from. And so sometimes someone might say, well, we want this to be sustainable so more and more content can be put on it over future years. And that is something we would all want, but it's important to acknowledge that additional content requires additional resources. People, local people recording local knowledge will want to be paid for their time to create it. So that's why I say it's important when you're having a conversation about sustainability is to sustain what exactly or to sustain a platform that can be used to add more and more things on top of, but those things on top will require resources or to sustain the knowledge attitudes and behaviors that that have shifted over time. Uh, so there, I think it's it's about just what exactly do you mean? And that's an important conversation to have. Right. The the first thing I think of is also how you sustain your organization because the people that you target are not paying for what it is that you are offering. So I'll pivot to that in a moment. But what I do want to ask you is um, take us through the talking book. Mm -hmm. So you have this device that you're manufacturing, I believe, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then you're putting the information onto it. So just tell us how you develop the device, put content on the device, and then get it out into the community. Okay, yeah, great. So the device, and one thing I should say is that there is this piece of hardware, I mean, it just kind of fits in your hand, uh, audio device that when you turn it on, it speaks to you in your local language and guides you around it so you can access lots and lots and lots of different content. And that's the hardware device. We also 
develop a lot of software around managing all of that and to help our partner organizations, which are really our customers. Um, so these would be organizations like a, a ministry, like in Niger, the, uh, there are three ministries involved uh, in a special initiative for, uh, of the president that's, in, that's called the Smart Villages Initiative. And so they would be our, our partners. In Ghana, there are organizations like World Vision or UNICEF or CARE, you know, these, so UN agencies or, or international NGOs. So we, I would consider us not just a nonprofit, um, but a social enterprise because we do have customers and we need to provide value to the customers if, and they have to pay for that value. So it's not just that we go around asking donors, can you give us money and we'll try to do some good stuff with this technology. Um, the donors are critical for us for the R&D, um, for the business development side of things for now. But in the end, it is a partner organization that's working locally um, that needs to say, I think this would be helpful to me and, and, um, and what products do you have to help me do this? So the talking book is one of them. And then there's software around that as well that, that helps them. But as far as how it's, it's uh, we, we do design it here in the U.S. Um, and then we, it's typically manufactured in China where most devices are. I mean, we own all the intellectual property so we could have it manufactured anywhere. But as far as the sure. right quality, durability, and cost, you know, the, that kind of um, balance of things, uh, it tends to be produced in China. And then, and then it gets shipped either from China directly to one of the countries that would use it, or we might have an inventory here in, in Seattle. Um, but the content is usually loaded locally because there's a USB port on it. And so with a laptop or even with a smartphone, you can just connect it with a USB cable and it will update with the latest content. It will also grab usage statistics so you know what people are listening to and how much they're listening to it. And very importantly, we could talk about this later if you're interested, user feedback. So the messages from the people who are typically living in rural villages, who are often illiterate, who are speaking their minds about what they think is helpful or what's not helpful or what's needed or not needed, what the root causes of some of the problems are. And then that their messages get back to these partner organizations. Sometimes they're international organizations, sometimes they're national government agencies who are learning about what their needs actually are to try to improve the program. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. So you create the software. Who are your content providers? The content providers are always going to be local because the content's always in the local language, in whichever multiple local languages often. And sometimes it may be if we have a partner who um, really understands the issues well and has local staff whose mother tongue is that language or dialect, then they'll create it. Otherwise, they may be using one of our local affiliates. Like in Ghana, this organization, Literacy Bridge Ghana, they are the ones who would be creating content for any partner who would like them to because they've been doing this for, for a decade or so now and, and are quite good at it. So they would go in and they might have an interview with an agriculture expert or with a public health nurse and, you know, have a conversation like we're having here, only it would be bringing out these kind of key pieces of information that the listeners could benefit from if they had this knowledge. So, for instance, the, the subjects that I've been talking about, washing hands, planting soybeans, but it could be delivering babies in hospitals, issues around child marriage. But these things typically come in discussions, either an interview, could be a song, 
but it can also be a drama. And the dramas are entertaining. They're funny and they're dramatic as they should be, but they're also informative. And they're always created locally, very, very, very locally, like typically using a women's singing group or a youth drama group from the same communities that would be listening to it. But under the guidance of either that partner organization or one of our affiliate organizations who are really good at creating this kind of content. Okay, nice, nice. So you kind of talked a little bit about the evaluation piece with the people giving feedback. So do you participate very widely in evaluating in the, the M&A of it all to inform your, your R&D or is it mostly from the client's mm-hmm. side? Yeah, great question. Uh, We've evolved a bit. So these days, we don't do it as often as we used to conduct this kind of monitoring and evaluation ourselves. And the reason we don't as much is because we're not asking the question anymore, does the talking book work? We know it works by the definition of what it's intended to do, which is to be a device that our target population, you know, people who have little or no formal education can use it easily, they can be comfortable with it, they can access knowledge, they can record their feedback. So we know that works. Um, The more interesting question for for many people is, yeah, but did it cause people to actually start delivering babies in hospitals or did it reduce the incidence of malaria because people were sleeping under bed nets? And those kinds of questions are not so much about the device specifically. The device has to work, but it has to do with Was the content compelling? Was it the right content for the right need? Was, were there other things in place, other resources in place to allow people to do these things? Did they have the bed nets? If they wanted to register their child's birth so the child could have access to healthcare and other things, was someone at the desk that day when they went there to register the birth? (laughs) So all of these things come together. And when you do an evaluation, if, that's, if what you're measuring is an outcome that requires many of these different dependencies, then you need to look at all of those. So that's sort of the long answer. The short answer is our partners typically do these now. We will sometimes help with it. But in the early years, we did them or we did them with partners. So we did randomized control trials with UNICEF right. and, and saw 50% more mothers sleeping under bed nets and washing hands with soap. We saw similar things with um, crop yields, farmers that had 48% higher crop yields than they had their previous season. And so this was all very encouraging. It made us know that this, a lot of great things could be done, but every new project needs to think about, well, wait a minute, for our project, what are we going to do to make it successful and how are we going to measure it? And the past evaluations only give you hope that this one has the possibility to go well if you're taking on the right the right need and and you have the right resources and and knowledge available to people. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. So, with that in mind, as well, because you have some affiliations with these the big donors. <laughs> so Microsoft is you were um, one of their inaugural. Fellow, I'd never heard of it, oh, but alumni integral fellow, fellow, Girl. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the Gates Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative. So, how did you find yourself in that kind of stream of visibility? And how would you? Was it unique to you, or are there certain things that you might recommend to people who are doing certain types of work to actually find those kinds of resources or be in that that stream of 
visibility. Mm, yeah. Well, with the Microsoft side, it was, you know, because I was a former Microsoft employee. And so they were looking for Microsoft alumni had who went on to do something, you know, some sort of, to try to cause some sort of positive change in the world. And there are many of us. And so they, there was an application process and I was very surprised uh, to win that, that year. And then they did another where they were kind of looking at all of the ones that they'd given awards to in the past, what have you done since then? And we were selected for, for that award as well. So that second one, I think, was more because of these kind of results. I think having this, these evaluations, that's why we did those evaluations in the early years is because we had to prove it wasn't just a good idea, but it, it was really making a difference. And so I think some of that that helped there. But that, but that's a combination is no one else could have applied for that if they weren't a Microsoft alumni. So I guess maybe one lesson there is think about your existing networks. What do you have? Whatever they might be. So that was a $25,000 cash prize, which was really great. That's not going to launch an organization or, you know, that's not going to be a lot of funding for a whole lot of time. It was really sure. great what it was. But I'm saying that thinking about what networks you have might still be a useful boost. Mm. And also... I would say that we got a lot of these awards. A lot of things happened around the same few years. And I think that there's some momentum behind that. So when you get one, there was a time where we were applying for a few things, but I felt like our success rate was very high for a while. And I think it was a little bit because you're kind of being discovered by the world. And um, we don't apply for these things as much now. But I also think our success rate wouldn't be as high. I think that, you know, you've kind of got a, the strike while the iron's hot kind of thing. Mm, I think we're right. doing our best work we've ever done now. Uh, we certainly have expanded. We make more of an impact now, but we aren't the new thing that people are looking at and talking about. And that's just the sure. reality. And you just have sure. to take advantage of that when it happens, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you when you really talk about impact, what's your reach? Mm-hmm. How how many have you served? What are we looking at? We're um, a bit over 800,000 people so far have listened to Talking nice. Books. So we, we hope to be at the 1 million point this year. So mm-hmm. that was our goal before COVID-19 hit. That has had... Uh, positive and, and negative impacts on our reach. Net negative, um, more projects have come to a, a halt because no one's doing anything. Like in Kenya, that's the case. Things are completely locked down. In Ghana, as you know, things were locked down quite a bit in the in the big cities. In the north, they didn't get quite that strict. And so yeah. our affiliate chose that they wanted to take this risk to go out there and work with frontline health workers to be able to spread knowledge about reducing the spread of COVID-19. And so that was very courageous of them. And and we helped fund that work because they wanted to do it. So that was positive. But anyway, sorry to kind of get back to your question about this. Yeah, we should be reaching a million, though we'll, we'll have to work really hard to get it because some of the projects have come down. A bit. Got it. Got it. So with that in mind, what is your COVID plan? How are you all, I guess, reimagining, solution solving? What are you doing in, in the now? Yeah, it's interesting. Some projects, as I mentioned, like in Kenya, shut down and, and other countries as well. And Myanmar, that happened in a couple of places. There were projects that looked like they were going to go forward. And then because no one could move, uh, this was the same thing in Somalia. We had a project about to launch there. and But because... They just weren't allowing anyone to travel, even people who you know might be doing something around in the health space, but especially for projects that were not directly related to health. 
And so those shut down or stalled and hopefully they'll come back. But there were also many projects that came to us and said, this is a great way we could really use talking books to help our healthcare workers be more effective. So for instance, there are a lot of healthcare workers that will go to community health workers who will go to a village once a month and they'll weigh newborn infants and and take measurements on them and deal with any somewhat urgent health needs at the time. And they do that every month as much as possible. And they're still doing that. It's also a time for community members to learn about many different issues that Ghana Health Service would like them to learn about. And But the problem is, you one of the things you want to do is tell them about reducing the spread of COVID-19 and the meningitis outbreak that uh, is a big concern in the North. And so what Ghana Health Service said is, can we get a lot of these messages on a talking book and our community health worker will bring this and play the talking book? And you might say, well, why, if that community health worker is there, why not they just speak it? Why do you need a device for it? And there's a few reasons. One is, as you said about teachers, many of the health workers aren't from these local districts and sometimes not even the region. So their knowledge of the local language is not so great. And Mm -hmm. so having these messages that are spoken in the local dialect played means that the community health worker can do that and have more of these messages communicated and accurately communicated. And then another is that with social distancing, if you have an amplifier on the speaker that we have, we've got a pretty loud built-in speaker, but we're also attaching an external speaker. So you can reach a lot of people who can all be distanced. So they don't need to be closely crowded around that community health worker. And then the other thing is just that this information is being played over and over on lots of different subjects while the community health worker is able to do their work. So those are some examples of where people are coming to us and saying, this is actually really helpful in the context of COVID. Whereas at the same time, especially on maybe an agriculture project, people are saying, we just can't take the risk of sending anyone out to do this agriculture project. And so we're going to put our entire thing on hold. And that includes the work we would have done with you. Got it. Got it. Interesting. So I have another question for you. That's one of my regulars. Mm -hmm. And that is, what is your favorite, especially in the context of having to think about what you do in these times, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack that you can imagine or one that you know of? Hmm. I think uh, to me, I think this is a really old subject, but not one that's been resolved or dealt with consistently the right way, I think. And that is anyone doing global development work, and the word global implies that there are people involved who are not from the local community. They're well-meaning people who are trying to, to do something, in our case, deliver knowledge or ideas that might shift attitudes to behaviors that could be more positive, more productive, more helpful to that community. But the big question, of course, is who is deciding what's more positive? And how do you have a team of people from different places work together to provide something that's um, wanted by the local community when the power of the, you know, the donor funds or the people developing the technology like Amplio or of the international NGO that's positioned there, how do you be careful about that what they think is what's important for where things might shift. You know, some of this even involves culture, the culture of some of the people that are involved and have the power in this. How is that positively and negatively affecting the culture of the people who are the target of this? And if it's around practices that can extend someone's life, there's maybe less debate about about that. 
But if it's around, there are certain kind of discussions and things where you get into, well, this is right because it's right for us. And so we assume it should be right for you as well. So uh, I don't know if that quite gets to what you had in mind, but for me, I think uh, thinking about that is, uh, is an important thing to continuously do. And I, I think the, the kind of things going on with race in America right now are one of the reasons that's probably popping into people's minds more often here in, in this country. Yeah. So I think you are saying in a little bit of a nutshell is context matters. Mm-hmm. Yes, context matters and power and money matter as well. <laughs> and so right. and what yeah. I mean is yeah. they will have their influence. And so you sure. should be cautious of that and thoughtful about that influence. Sure. Right, right. That's always, yeah, it's always, that's the elephant in the room, yeah. so to speak. Okay, I like that. So this has been a great conversation. It gets me thinking more about my digging in and, and especially how how to get out of the studio and out of the, the lab and onto the ground because we're in post-production now. So we're not really in the field. We're just in content land. So with that in mind, and I know I'm conscious of your time and I don't want to keep you too long. So I do want to ask one of my questions that I ask just to kind of get to know more about how your mind works. Are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Are you a listener? Oh, wow. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that question. I would say uh, usually it's probably, uh, wow, it's it's really a mix. I think it's typically for me, it's been a mix between watching and listening. And reading, wow, I don't know. I mean, it's a lot of this. So reading, I do a lot of reading that's very directly related to my work. And so watching, I try to get out in the communities. In the beginning, I was always out where their work was. Well, I mean, that's pretty necessary when you're a small team and you just have to do that. So I think that, yeah, I don't, I think it's kind of, it's all three, but it shifts. So I'm not as much of a watcher lately because we have a larger team. And so it's not my job to be out in the communities as much. In other words, I I should be able to help our mission more effectively by doing other things besides that. So then it's listening to, maybe this would be a little bit of the evolution is that you might go from a watcher to a listener as your team grows and you are delegating and empowering them and needing to trust them and listen to them. So that's yeah. maybe the shift from watching to listening. Reading, um, maybe very, very, very beginning, I was doing a lot of reading about the subject before I could watch. And then now I found myself reading more about things that are not so directly related to my work, but are important, you know, and, and end up finding their ways into all of life, I think. Okay. So then given that you're doing a little bit more watching or listening, mm-hmm. what are you watching these days? And this is outside of the context of work necessarily, just what, what in your... Oh, I see. Yeah. So that's funny. When you said watching, I kind of interpreted that like firsthand on the ground watching. But, yeah, no, um, I, I, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I, I, that's why I leave a lot of my questions open because mm-hmm. I like the way people's minds, minds work. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So because of what's going on in this country, most of my watching and reading has been around race issues lately. So I finally watched the documentary 13. And as far as reading, I am uh, just finished How to Be an Anti-Racist by Kendi. And so these are, you know, these are documentaries and books that have been around for, well, at least a year. And in that case, probably about a year. Um, the documentary is around for, I don't know, about four years or more, five years. So yeah, I think it's one of those things. I'm one of many, many, many people who are 
realizing that I am not up on as much as I want to be up on. <laughs> um, sure. So, yeah. Sure. I guess the good thing, well, not the good thing, where because there's so much space, there's a lot of opportunity to get to do to be a quick study, mm-hmm. to really come come to this and really get a good understanding mm-hmm. without distractions, without particularly with the sports and all the entertainment out of the picture. It's mm-hmm. like a real, this is education time. This mm-hmm. is time to go back to basically the books mm-hmm. and back to learning. So yeah. And be grateful yeah. that, that other people for years or decades have dedicated their work to do these things. So exactly. if you go into it with humility, that's, I know, you know, people come in different levels of I know absolutely nothing, I know something, but I have a lot to learn. And then to to read and to listen, I think, is uh, yeah. important there. Hopefully there won't be too many people who who read and then say, I think I've got this all figured out. I want to seat the table and, and help solve the problem. <laughs> so, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right. Do, do a lot more listening and yeah. watching. Yeah. Do some of that. And, then, and then really be responsible and, and act. Mm-hmm. That's the yes. hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Cliff, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you, I'm, Florence. It's been great. Yeah. I'm looking at your sunny Seattle yeah, window. And it's it's nighttime here. So I've had yeah. it's raining season also here. So it reminds I I'm thinking that's the, the only kinship we have is we, we have a lot of rain going on that's together. Right, the rain. I know. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So do you have any last words for our our listeners? No, um, I guess maybe the only thing I'd say is that I love the theme of your podcasts. And I think when you you talk about um, thinking beyond borders and uh, globally and locally and having those ideas in your mind together, I think that's so important because, yeah, there's just so many forces trying to divide up and put uh, people in silos and, and that kind of thing. So yes, thanks to you for for what you're doing with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So this has been another episode of Glocal Citizens. And I want to make a point to say that our show notes are going to be pretty rich because I'm hoping that I can get um, some images or links to images of the talking talking book obviously what cliff is watching what cliff is reading and just other information about the work that's going on behind the scenes and on the ground in in the amplio world so so look out for that and otherwise i want to say to my audience keep on listening keep on subscribing we are at www.glocalcitizenspod.com we're on apple we're on Google. We're basically everywhere that you get your podcasts. So once again, until next time, bye for now. Bye.